Today's episode of Home Row is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB offers an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, which helps readers make a deeper connection with God's Word, and it also inspires lifelong discipleship. The CSB is equally suited for serious study or for sharing with your neighbor hearing God's Word for the very first time. Learn more at csbible.com. All right, everyone, welcome to episode 28 of Home Row, and I'm Jeff Metters, and today I have a really special guest, so excited that, that he was able and, and willing to come on the show, author Roy Peter Clark. Roy, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm sitting in an um, air-conditioned office comfortably in St. Petersburg, Florida, where it's very, very hot outside. Oh, same here. I, I'm in Houston, Texas. It's super hot. And yep. mega humid, almost unbearable to go outside and even get the mail. Yeah, when I walking from the door of of the institute to my car, which is about forty steps, <laughs> is it is a uh, gives you a sweaty shirt. Is what it gives you. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, same here. Now, for the listeners out there who don't know who you are, would you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself? Yeah, you know, I arrived in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, exactly 40 years ago and um, have spent those years <clears throat> mostly working with um, uh, working with and for uh, the Pointer Institute, which is a, a nonprofit journalism school uh, that owns the Tampa Bay Times Publishing Company. And the Times, which used to be the St. Petersburg Times, uh, is, a, is one of America's best newspapers. And um, it's uh, my background originally was um, in English literature. I have a PhD in English literature. I was in a, a, briefly an assistant professor of English um, at a college in Montgomery, Alabama. And... Um, I was invited to come to St. Petersburg for one year in 1977 to do a writing improvement project in uh, at the Times. And so um, I was one of the first writing coaches hired in journalism. And uh, that year, that one year became 40, became my oh, wow. uh, my surprising career. Amazing. And you, you've written a lot of books on writing. Yeah, especially uh, I've written uh, – I'm about to start work on my 19th book, which will either as a author or as an editor. Um, but the real uh, – from my point of view, the real success has come in the last decade. Um, so I've published five books – in the the last decade uh, on writing and language and reading with Little Brown, who the famous publisher uh, who originally published um, Emily Dickinson. Um, and uh, the first of those books um, now just had its 10th anniversary edition. It was called Writing Tools. And there are more than 200,000 copies of that book uh, in print. So um, it's been... An exciting decade 
to as an author to sort of pull together a lot of the learning and a lot of the teaching experiences that I've had over the last um, 30 years or so. And, and maybe for the folks out there who who haven't dipped into to any of your works yet, would you recommend people begin with writing tools? Yeah. So these five books have a kind of um, progression. So um, writing tools, the subtitle is um, of the new edition is 55 Essential Strategies for Every Writer. Oh, no, I have the old one. I have the 50. Yeah. Yep. So we added five more strategies to um, the new edition. And I'm I'm delighted that um, uh, I, I'm a I'm a a friend and champion of independent bookstores, but I'm, I'm also delighted that, um, that Amazon and other, uh, online booksellers, uh, offer my work at a significant discount so that they're easily affordable and available for students and, and professionals alike. So we started off with writing tools and we start then uh, the second book in the in the sequence, if you want to call it that, was the glamour of grammar, um, the magic and mystery of practical English, and it sort of takes some of the strategies of um, of writing tools and and digs a little deeper in terms of the technical aspects of the language. Uh, the third book was called Help for Writers, Help with an Exclamation Point. And um, that book uh, essentially deconstructs the writing process into these seven major steps. And that for each of those steps, um, we've identified three essential problems that almost every writer faces at one time or another. And then for each of those problems, um, I come up with 10 practical solutions. So it's a very problem and solution approach to uh, writing process. The fourth in the series was called How to Write Short, Wordcraft for Fast Times, that um, has attracted uh, uh, an audience of people who are, especially people who are writing in the digital age, Although the point that I make is that short writing has been important, you know, since God carved the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Right. <laughs> One of the first great listicles. Yeah. In, uh, in yeah, the first culture. viral uh, blog post there. <laughs> um, and then this this later my my most recent book is called The Art of X-ray Reading. How the Secrets of 25 Great Works of Literature Will Improve Your Writing. And as a sort of an English major and a, uh, a literature teacher, I go back and I revisit, you know, wor works from Shakespeare to um, The Great Gatsby and beyond. And I basically uh, try to demonstrate how, how a reader looks at literature and how a uh, I'm sorry, how a writer looks at literature and how a writer reads in order to not just extract meaning, but to find ways of writing. And um, 
that's been a that was a lot of fun to write and it had a lot of meaning for me because I could uh, uh you know at the age of 69 I could go back and go back to college in essence and and sort of retrace the path of my learning through literature yeah i i added that one the x-ray of reading to my to my amazon wish list and i'm really excited mm-hmm. to to get that because i've shared on my my podcast before and listeners know this that I just never paid attention in English in high school. Mm-hmm. And I didn't read the books that we were supposed to. I just tried to either do the cliff notes or just guess on the tests. Mm-hmm. And now I look back and go, man, I was such an idiot. I wish I would have read those books and paid attention. And, and so now I want to go back and read them. And hopefully I can use your book as a good guide. I, yeah. I really, really enjoyed writing tools. Look at it often. I'm actually holding help for writers was on my desk and the, the right. glamour of grammar. I'm reading both of those right now. And I remember I read uh, How to Write Short in uh, Big Sky, Montana, just while on vacation. And was just so encouraged mm-hmm. and helped by that. So, guys, definitely go out and, and get these books. You can find links to them in the show notes, which you can find at homeroad.fireside.fm. Or you can just view the description of this episode in your podcast app, and you'll find the links links to those there. Thank now, you very much. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. I, I hope I hope people go out and buy them. It's it's been so helpful to me as a writer, and I know listeners will will just be so encouraged and and help to to sit at their keyboard or to grab their journal and to pick up their fountain pen and get to work. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd be I, I always ask uh, the the people I interview how how did you become a writer? So, um, you know, I'm very interested. Uh, in a, uh, in a, I, I often work not just with journalists, but I work with, um, I work with very young writers, children, and uh, I work with um, school teachers at every level, language arts teachers, and one of the the big questions that's related to your question is, is how how do you come to identify? yourself as a writer it's a really tricky question so and it's and and i get to it as uh through the through the pathway of some other crafts and activities so for example uh there came a time when i could i would say that i would identify as a musician but that took a long time uh, many years of of formal training in my youth, and then many years of of playing uh, in 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 bands and in groups and things right. like that. Um, so th- even though I played music for many years, many years, I didn't identify myself as a musician until much later in my life. Um, I've taken up in the last 15 years, I've taken up golf and I would call myself now a golfer. Um, but I certainly didn't call myself or identify myself that way. Um, until I was a few years into the activity where I, uh, I realized, came to realize, oh yeah, I'm thinking this way. I'm, uh, I'm practicing this way. Uh, I'm talking this way. 
why shouldn't I call myself, um, you know, a golfer? So, so in many, many fields of activity, uh, it's not just, there are many people who practice various habits, behaviors, crafts, who don't necessarily, or are unwilling to identify themselves as writers. And that was true for me too, that I was, uh, I knew that I was a, I would have identified myself as a reader, as an expert reader as a reader of poetry, as a reader of literature. And even though I wrote about those things, it was only after I entered a newsroom where I began to write more consistently for an audience, a variety of audiences, that I was willing to kind of identify myself, identify myself that way, even though I can trace in my earliest education uh, examples of uh, of writing, but most of those acts of writing occurred outside the context of formal education. In other words, I wrote a little Christmas poem for like a newsletter, or we were, we in high school we wrote a funny little satirical homeroom newspaper that was very popular, and these were. Um, these were things which um, prepared me, I suppose you'd say, for um, at some point accepting and acting on the fact that I'm uh, I'm a writer. This is this is hugely important because we live in a society where we say that freedom of expression is is important and powerful and part of our DNA given to us, granted to us by the First Amendment and our histories and history and traditions, yet what good is uh, freedom of expression if we lack the means to express ourselves? We treat reading as a, as a social literacy, something that is not only possible, but, but crucial to uh, uh, one's success in education, in a job, as a citizen. Um, and yet, uh, we don't do that with writing. We still hold writing up as some kind of fine art where you need some special talent in order to, um, identify yourself that way. And I think that's, that's disabling for individuals and ultimately for the country. Mm, That's good. Yeah, it makes me think about how just in education and then in just your everyday, you know, writing on the Internet or mm-hmm. even tweeting or texting that we're communicating and not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others, whether that's through uh, textbook writing, uh, Christian books, um, novels mm-hmm. to for adventure and for entertainment. Uh, this is all a part of the, the human experience. Absolutely. Now, now in writing tools, there's, I, I love one of the sections there on special effects, and I, I love to think of it as the pyrotechnics of writing. And mm-hmm. what, what are some of, if you identify maybe your your favorite special effects in writing, uh, what, what would those be? Well, um, I would say that the one, uh, the one particular effect. Uh, that I um, 
that I learned from, from the writing coach Donald Murray has to do with how you make something clear, how you turn like hard facts into easy reading. And I think it has a lot to do with a quality that I will call pace. Um, um, some, you know, when I find a name for a particular effect, um, I of course use it, um, such as, you know, the, we talked about a couple minutes ago about the writer's identity. I, l- I learned that from, from, from other writers and scholars. I couldn't really find a word to describe how fast or slow the information or the story flies by. So I just took a common word, pace, uh, to describe that. And, um, and here's, what, here's what Don Murray says. He says that, um, he says, use shorter words, sentences, paragraphs at the points of greatest complexity. And what happens when you get, um, and I give a few examples there about, I take, I take a, a very long sentence that was written by an editorial writer um, to um, try to explain um, a policy in state government. And I remember taking that sentence, which was one long sentence filled with uh, bureaucratic language and abstract words. And what I did was I divided it into, I rewrote it into eight sentences. So what happens when you take the difference between having one period or having eight periods that greatly affects the pace of reading? Um, a period is a stop sign. The Brits call it the full stop. That's right. And um, if you think about it, if you have a passage in which there are eight stops, kind of like a neighborhood with eight stop signs as opposed to like a superhighway, yeah. that it forces you, forces the reader to slow down. Now, why would you want the reader to slow down? Why wouldn't you want to speed up the reader? Um, and the answer is, well, that there are these moments, there are these, these tasks that the writer has to um, accomplish. If you want to create a story that has suspense in it, um, you want to slow the reader down before you... Um, uh, you tell them where the monster is hiding. If you want to write a passage uh, that has great emotional impact and you want to linger on those feelings, short sentences will do that. And if you have something very complicated uh, that you want to try to explain, shorter sentences help with that as well. So it's all not all about the base it's all about the pace when it comes to comprehensibility yeah it's such a great great and helpful tip cuz sometimes you can just focus on 
there's all these different elements. We, what we're communicating and the point we're trying to make, but then also how we do that and the -hmm. scaffolding we give and the kind of brushes that we use and the different paint colors and just all of these elements come together to create a really beautiful paragraph or a great sentence. And I love that, that idea in, in writing tools on varying your sentence length. I think it's so helpful, especially for me when a lot of my writing, all of my writing is nonfiction mm-hmm. writing and I'm trying to communicate and, and trying to teach and to help vary when you have a long sentence with a, either commas and semicolon going on and then to have a, you know, a two words, a two word sentence next or a three word sentence next. Um, it's so helpful just to kind of give some, a breath of fresh air. But it does kind yeah, of break you know, the rules. The other, the other thing, that, yeah, sorry, the, the other thing that that I that you see, you don't. I don't see this much. I don't see this as much anymore. But um, uh, it wasn't too long, too many years ago, when if you were to read the uh, the news stories in the big newspapers like the New York Times and the uh, Washington Post, you would get these kind of opening paragraphs. Uh, in journalism, we call those the leads of the story, right? Right, right. And the leads, and and, and these these leads were were uh, ridiculed uh, by some critics as suitcase leads. Well, what do you mean suitcase? What's that metaphor or analogy about? And it's and the and and the idea was that everybody has had the experience of trying to prepare for a trip. And you, you bring a suitcase and you want to pack as much as you can. Um, and so you pack the suitcase and you close it. And what happens? Well, sometimes it won't close. So what do people do? And I've done it. You sit on it, right? Uh-huh. Until it closes. So you get all this stuff, too much stuff stuffed in this particular space. And that's what happened in, in news writing that was um, very, very often difficult to comprehend. From the reporter's point of view, everything was there. It was all there, and it was all checked out, and it was all accurate. But there was a failure to take the next step, which is what's the best way to take responsibility for what the reader knows and understands after they experienced um, this opening passage. That's really good. I, I think I just want to keep encouraging people to go and to get writing tools that if you haven't read or not familiar with it, 50, I mean, I have the one 50, but 55, I'm gonna have to go out and get the updated version now, but just, he just gives great tips on how to activate your verbs, uh, watch out for your adverbs uh, don't fear the long sentence. And then down into special effects that get the name of the dog. Um, can you give a little bit of insight to that? So what do you mean by get the name of the dog? <laughs> so there was a correction in the New York Times. I've never seen anything quite like it. It was just a couple of days ago. I guess I, I saw it on, on Twitter. And the correction said um, something like, you know, in such and such a story, um, the name of, oh, the um, the breed uh, uh the breed of um, Buster the dog uh, was stated incorrectly. You know, Buster is not a um, Labrador retriever. He's a golden retriever. 
And then in, 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 in parentheses it says, but he's still a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the name of the dog is, is a, a, an example, is a plea for, I guess, more abstractly we would call particularity. Um, it's all the specific details in our reporting and storytelling that um, that bring things to life. Um, not too long ago, I was um, I was studying um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, and um, not for uh, not primarily for. Um, religious edification or for, um, you know, spiritual enlightenment, but for storytelling purposes. And what's very interesting is um, the choice of details. Now, we don't know the name of this person who helped rescue the man in the ditch, because that's not so important. What's important is his tribal identity. He's a, he's a Samaritan, right? Which identifies him as a sort of a member of a despised tribe or group. And when Jesus is trying to explain to the lawyer who is my neighbor, uh, he doesn't pick someone familiar or expect. He 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 selects some. Uh, someone very surprising. And when you look at the details of the story, we, we know a little bit about what the Samaritan brought on the trip, on his journey. He brought um, some kind of a beast of burden, a donkey, so, uh, something he could ride on. He, he had wine and oil with him, and he had money. He had silver coins, uh, denarii, who, uh, were the... Um, the name of the coins. And so when you look at those three details, you realize that these are things that the Samaritan brought on his journey for for his own comfort, for his own safety, for his own um, ease. And yet he winds up sacrificing all three of these for the comfort and safety and health of the fallen man. So this idea of you know uh, being specific, being particular, getting the name of the dog, getting the brand of the beer, getting the make and model of the sports car—all of these things add richness to both reports and stories. Yeah, I love it. I think that's one of my favorite writing tools. I think it just elevates writing so much. And I think it was C.S. Lewis who talked about you know, don't tell me the tree is beautiful. Show show me the beautiful tree. What kind of tree mm-hmm. is it? Like even mm-hmm. so, something so simple today, like listeners, if you're in your car and you want to, you know, don't just say, you know, later, oh, I, I drove to work. Like, mm-hmm. well, what did you drive in? Oh, was it a yeah. car? Was it a sedan? Was it a coupe? Was it a truck? Okay. Was it a Toyota? Mm-hmm. Was it a 94 Toyota Camry? That's AC is on the fritz. I mean, you can like get concrete. I love that you mentioned the the parable from Jesus. I'm preaching this Sunday on Mm -hmm. the parable where Peter says, you know, how often should I forgive my brothers seven times enough? Mm -hmm. 
And then Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. And then he gives a story about this king who is collecting accounts from his servants, from his workers. And this guy, you know, Jesus didn't say, and this guy owed a lot of money. He said Mm -hmm. he owed him billions of dollars Mm -hmm. in our equivalent. So like even that concrete use of that, he owed him not a vast sum, but he owed him billions of dollars. Um, I think Jesus is, is a masterful teacher, masterful wordsmith. So, so I want, I want to, uh, you, you can use this, uh, you can use this in your homily if, 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 uh, if it helps. Um, a, a very good friend of mine, um, Howell Rains, who um, I met when he was a political reporter at the St. Petersburg Times, he eventually won a Pulitzer Prize for feature writing and became an, he became the executive editor of the New York Times. Oh, wow. And, and uh, in the 19, late 70s, he published a book about the um, civil rights movement, an oral history, and he published a novel called Whiskey Man, set in North Alabama. And it's about this man, this bootlegger, um, who... Um, is as sinful as his wife is uh, devout and holy. And so it's a sort of a um, a, a bootlegger married to a church lady. And uh, um, the great surprise in the novel is that uh, he's constantly offending his wife, who is constantly forgiving him. And at the end of the novel, um, she shoots and kills him oh. <laughs> with a shotgun. And they find uh, like a calendar or a journal in which she has, she's keeping account of how many times she's forgiven him. And she forgives him seven times, 70 times. 490 times. Wow. And on the 491st offense, <laughs> she shoots and kills him. <laughs> that's taking that's taking biblical literalism. <laughs> that is another level right there. To, to a wonderful new level. <laughs> that is so funny. I, I wrote down this morning when I was preparing, I said, I think Jesus, you know, just saying 490, because who's really going to keep track of that? Yeah, <laughs> you, exactly. you know. well, this lady did. <laughs> yeah, she did. Now, one, maybe one last question uh, before you go. Sure. Let's, see, let's see if we get enough time here. Uh, a listener sent in, uh, he's a writer that, that follows the podcast and we interact on Twitter. His name's Benjamin Verbacek, and he's at Benjamin Verbacek there on Twitter. He sent in, how does a writer create a philosophy of contractions he said it's a weird question i know but i'm asking how do you know when to write it is and not it's or vice versa mm-hmm. and a hundred other you know contraction options is it a combination of kind of the ethos of the publication formal versus informal younger audience versus older audience academic versus popular or do you just trust your own voice in ear what do you think roy so i uh, i think that that um it, it's kind of a um it's. I think. I, I think uh, this question lends itself to um, to a kind of um, a spectrum, okay, where you're kind of um, imagining or analyzing the text that you're writing, 
um, in terms of the, the degrees of formality. So I would say that as a general uh, algorithm, that the more informal the writing is, the more likely you are to use contractions. And that, um, hang on, let me just, I'm, I may have gotten that wrong. Let me say it again. The less formal the text, the more room there is for contractions. Um, because we speak in contractions and the voice of, um, of the writing sounds more informal when we use contractions. Right, right. Um, if I want to make a text more conversational, I'm more inclined to use contractions. The more formal the document, uh, the less likely you are to use uh, contractions. Uh, I think I was studying. I was studying uh, for, for my book on short writing. I was studying um, the um, telegrams from the 1930s and 40s, especially the ones that occurred around World War II, and. Uh, very often, or some, there were times where there were death notices to families. Um, we regret to inform you, kinds of of messages. Uh -huh. And as as you look at that language, uh, there are. Even though you were paying by the word, there are. It's very rare to have abbreviations or contractions. The more abbreviations, the more contractions, the more informal. The fewer, the more formal. Very helpful. And it, it is it is kind of a peculiar thing. I, and I never really thought about till Benjamin sent this mm -hmm. in. So so thanks, Ben, yeah, for sending that it's in. It's a good question. Yeah, a good technical good question for sure. Okay, last one. Hopefully we have time for one more. One bit of advice for an aspiring writer. Let's say someone run in, runs into you there in St. Petersburg, Florida, and they said, oh, I listened to Home Row, and, and you know, what, what bit of advice would you give me? I'm, I'm struggling, or I'm not, I'm not confident, or I just, I just don't know what to do. What, what's what's mm -hmm. one common, most popular bit of advice that you give out? Um, it comes from a poet um, whose name escapes me right now, um, but uh, I may think of I may think of it before before we're finished here. Uh, in fact, his name is William Stafford, and William Stafford uh, argued that writer's block usually derived from uh, a writer having uh, standards that were too high, too early. So um, I actually right at this moment am, uh, have been thinking about a couple of essays that I want to write that to me are important, and I haven't been able to get to them yet. Uh, 
and I, I know it's partly because I'm going to be disappointed when I, after I sit down and write for a few minutes, but I have to keep telling myself that I'm writing not a first draft uh, for this story, but a zero draft. That my early, earliest writing, the kind of stuff that I might do in pen on a yellow pad, that this is a form of sort of exploration, which really helps me figure out what I want to say, what voice I want to use to say it, what the focus of the essay or the story is going to be. And if I, and it'll also help me achieve some momentum. Um, so there's two kinds of inertia, right? I, I, I'm not a science major, but, but the, the laws of physics, I think, work this way, that an object in motion tends to stay in motion. An object that is, that is still um, tends to stay still until some force is imposed uh, upon it. So my, my pen is now resting on my calendar until I flick it, as I did just this second, and now it's on the wooden part of my desk. Okay? So the idea is to try to um, uh, get yourself moving, to, to turn negative emotion, uh, momentum into, uh, into something that's, that's positive. So um, lower your standards at the beginning of the process. Create not a first draft, but a zero draft. And then as you create multiple drafts of your work over time, then your standards can get higher and higher and higher until publication. And then you smile, you receive your reward or your big check, <laughs> and um, um, you, you go on to the, to the next one. That's great advice, great advice and um, stuff I need to heed even, even this week and projects I have. Roy, thank you so much for coming on. Be sure to go to Roy's website, and you can follow him on Twitter. You can find all the links for his books and all of that pertinent information there in the show notes. Uh, Roy, thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff, for your hospitality. And uh, here's a shout-out to all the writers who are listening to you.